Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. I want to talk with you today about four things that I believe to be true. Uh, first, 95% of life's problems can't be solved by politics and government. Next, Occupy Wall Street got the wrong address. And I'll share with you what I believe that address is in just a few moments. Uh, thirdly, politics, as most of you know, has become a business. And the only way to understand politics is to dig into the money and the power incentives. And lastly, uh, the Harvard class of 1968 does not represent a cross-section of the rest of America. <laughs> and with me to talk about Harvard and these other three topics is uh, Haven Pell. Haven is a uh, Harvard graduate and has spent a career uh, in uh, as a lawyer, investment banker, foundation director, financial advisor. Uh, he's now blogging at uh, Liberty Pell, and his title is uh, Pundificator. And I hope, hope he'll explain to us what Pundificator means in a minute. But first, I want to talk about um, Harvard with Haven. He was there at his 50th reunion uh, not too long ago and wrote a really interesting essay on it that you can find at his website, uh, libertypell.com, along with a lot of other interesting things he's written on the topics we're going to talk about today. Haven, great to see you. Bill, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I guess, tell me about pundificator. It's a great word. Did you invent uh, it? If you, if you are uh, sort of self-taught, uh, in this realm as I am, uh, you, you can't take yourself too seriously. And it seemed to me that people who were writing uh, about the topic, uh, about the, uh, the uh, major business in Washington where both you and I live, um, they do tend to take each other, they take themselves pretty seriously. And so it seemed like there was room for someone who might write about this, but perhaps not take himself quite so seriously. And uh, so it seemed to me that combining pundit, which there are many, and pontificate, which is clearly a bad thing. I mean, we don't know <laughs> nobody wants to be a, pontif a pontificator. It seemed to me that combining the two into a sort of a supermax um, uh, uh, version uh, was a pretty good thing. And uh, it, is, it has turned out to be my very best search term on Google. And it, it remains. I, I am the number one pundificator on Google. And uh, so maybe that means something. But boy, blogging is not an easy business. Well, I can, I can, I can second that podcast is, runs a close second or maybe even it runs ahead of blogging. Uh, and yeah, you're certainly right about the solemnness with which most of our friends here in Washington uh, uh, do their pundit business with. It's, uh, it's uh, true words are never spoken. So uh, you went to Harvard, 68, recent reunion. First, I want to establish my bona fides to speak with you about Harvard. Uh, I went to PS 86 in Indianapolis and graduated from public high school and went to Indiana University, uh, public school in Bloomington. Uh, took me seven years to get through because I dropped out 
got drafted during the Vietnam era. And so it did, I didn't really follow the straight and narrow <laughs> came going through college. But when it comes to Harvard, I, I spent a lot of my career working with college, college, Harvard college graduates and liked most all of them. Uh, and, and, but some of them worked for me and I had to fire a couple. So I, I, uh, I know the good, the bad, and the ugly about Harvard. That can happen. <laughs> Tell me about the reunion. It must have been fascinating. Well, it, it was interesting. I, in a way, um, I have thought about uh, I have thought about what makes it possible for me to pretend that I can add something to anyone else's life on the topic of politics. And um, I have been I lived in Washington since 1979, and so the Washington Post has sort of been my newspaper and it treats politics as sports writers. Um, um, uh, it's, it's a big sports page for politics. And uh, so- and there, and there is a home team. And there is a home team, yes. <laughs> the swamp is the yeah. home team. And um, uh, so uh, along the way uh, from during my various careers and I'm reading about this and I'm beginning to say to myself, hey, this doesn't look like it's working very well. And I have my final visit with my uh, a longtime uh, uh, doctor for a physical. He said quite pejoratively, I might add, that I was an addicted problem solver, and that uh, I, and I know he did not mean that in a, in a good way, uh, <laughs> although it's completely true. So I looked at this and I said, "What am I going to do with my retirement?" And I said, I'm going to write about politics. And so I have actually been doing that for um, seven years. And you know, while I may not have all the credentials in the entire world, uh, in terms of being an autodidact and spending seven or eight years trying to figure out what these things are and, and what the answers might be, I've you know, probably advanced reasonably far um, in, in thinking about these issues. So I get to my reunion. Um, and uh, an important aspect of that is I graduated in 1968, and I am now a firm believer that there should be a constitutional amendment that says if you can name anything that happened in 1968, you are ineligible for public office. We're done. <laughs> my group is done. We, we've had enough. And uh, it's time for the next team. No more, no more people who can say anything about 1968. And so they decided that they were going to have four sessions on polarization. And I thought, wow, you know, if I were looking for one word that pretty much describes what I have been writing about for seven years, it's pretty much polarization because it seems yeah. to me to be the antithesis of anything that has to do with problem solving. So I say to myself, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to go to these four sessions on polarization, and I'm going to hear about from wonderful people that are smart and have had wonderful careers and have been extremely <laughs> successful in everything that they've done. And this is going to, this is going to be a real eye-opener. Um, I suppose with that set up, it's pretty easy to see the punchline was it wasn't. <laughs> 
Well, I guess one of the key signs was one of the panels had Linda Greenhouse, who was the, what, the court reporter, Supreme Court reporter for New York Times, and she had an armband that said resist, uh, along with a couple of the other panelists. Yeah, I found that I thought that was notable. Um, I mean, in theory, at least the way I looked at it, it seemed to me that the better view is that polarization is bad. Uh, and, and it's not bad for everyone. It, it's, it seems to me to be bad. By polarization, uh, you mean the, the right-left polarization. Exactly. Um, the, the contact sport we see in Washington. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that that is, if you prefer running a country, then pushing people to the edges of agreement where they get they fall off the cliff and they're not able to agree on anything can't be a good way for democracies to run themselves or republics to run themselves and so i it seemed to me that i would hear that polarization was a bad thing i i think what i did hear was that there was an easy solution to polarization which is everybody has to think like me <laughs> and this was true of, of many of the speakers. There was a, a marginal effort to uh, have a few people who were not speaking from a progressive perspective, um, by the way, many of whom were eloquent and thoughtful, uh, not least Tom Reston, a guy who uh, uh, lives here in Washington uh, and has written a very interesting take on the history of the Democratic Party and, and mm -hmm. sort of how it's lost its way. And I thought that that was, that was really excellent. And I thought that there were some observations that were, that were useful, but it was very much overcome by things that one might just see on the internet. Um, picture four, four sessions, four one-hour sessions, two of which were devoted to uh, sort of diagnosing the problem, and two of which were devoted to solutions. And uh, imagine, say, 350, 400 people in each session. They were obviously self-selected. There were over a thousand people at the reunion, and maybe others were smarter than me and decided that they would not bother with those sessions. Um, and uh, it was uh, yeah. it, it was a little bit surprising to see. Um, what you describe of Linda wearing the resist armband, and she was not alone. There was another person on the panel with the same armband, which they have a perfect right to wear. That's fine, except it, it doesn't send the best message about being anti-polarization. Can I confess to not paying attention to something? I, I see resist. What, what do they mean by resist? Who are they resisting? Resist Trump. Um, you know, okay. And, and, and by the way, I mean, it's, it's, not, it, it, it's not that Trump doesn't deserve to be resisted. Um, he, there are aspects of his demeanor, and I think we've seen quite a bit of that going on this past week, um, uh, that are definitely pretty suspect. And um, uh, there, are, there are certainly people who have very legitimate criticisms of the way he goes about his job. Well, you know, you and I have talked about this before. We were, we were going to, Arnold Kling's been a guest on the show. And 
we was going to come on today and had, had a head cold, so we'll get him back. We'll all talk together. But he talks about the three languages, politics, and how the three three tribes really have uh, three separate moral codes: the progressive, uh, liberal have one code, the conservatives have another, and libertarians would have would have a third. Yeah. And there's a liberal consensus about what's right and what's wrong, and it sounds like there was like 99% convergence about that in that room uh, or during those panels. And then the other divide that I see, and there was a book written, I don't know, four or five years ago by an author named Angelo Cotavia, which I recommend, um, called The Ruling Class. And, okay. that, is, and that is a, a little different take. And it says, this, this hypothesis is the, is the polarization is not just left right, but it's also the elites versus the rest of the country. I think and that's entirely fair. The rest of the country, uh, uh, I think that explains why Trump got elected. Absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think one of the things that you're seeing now is um, uh, people like, uh, well, one that comes to mind, obviously there are any number of books that endeavor to explain how non-Washington thinks, uh, some of which I think um, are, are less useful, but Obviously, there's a good deal of effort that is going on. Uh, James and Ann Fallows um, deciding that they're going to go see what the heartland of America looks like. And <laughs> did they wear pith helmets? Uh, well, they, I, they did it very. They did it very interestingly. They went to um, uh, certainly not primary cities. They went yeah. to very much secondary cities. Yeah. Now they did go by airplane. Uh, he flies a plane, or they both do. And uh, they would pop down in, in uh, some play in Sioux Falls or wherever it was. And then they'd spend a week wandering around town and trying to find out what was going on. And, uh, get, so and I'll bet it's a good book. Get, I mean, I get in touch after you step off your Arkansas. Get, get in touch after you step off your Gulf Stream. Uh, yes. Well, this is a propeller plane. And okay. All right. I, <laughs> I, was, I was a little bit jealous because I did the same thing last winter. Um, partly to go to uh, see a friend in Arkansas and see some things that were going on in the Arkansas Delta, which is a pretty, pretty challenging place um, at the moment. And um, uh, also uh, to travel around in the West under the uh, guise of a massive ski trip. And, um, uh, but also to, you know, uh, do what my wife pejoratively referred to as my Jack Kerouac thing. And um, uh, it was, uh, it was interesting, and and I think a lot of I people. Want to, I want to specify you don't drink, so no, not no. complete chapter. Yeah. And, and there were no controlled substances <laughs> there, and uh, so, um, you know, I think a lot of people have become interested in what is going on in the rest of the country, and maybe yeah. this elitism that is that everyone around us is accused of, um, maybe there's some truth to that, which it strikes me there is. And I mean, in a way, that's um, kind of what leads me to the idea that Occupy Wall Street got the wrong address. And what is the right address? I left that hanging out there. I knew the answer, but I wanted you to, I wanted you to dig into it because that is your, um, your, your idea, and I, and I believe it's absolutely right. I um, was asked to write an essay for something called the Passy Press, and the Passy Press is... Um, uh, a website uh, located in Paris. It's named after Ben Franklin's Press, 
um, when he was the ambassador um, mm -hmm. before the revolution. And it is an invitation only, I think it's maybe three or 400 subscribers, something like that. But it's a pretty upscale group of subscribers. And you are invited to write an essay. It must be a thousand words or less, and it must come to a conclusion. It must have a recommendation. You can't just lob a problem out there and walk away from it. That would so, be a highly unusual uh, piece then, because that's most of most of what punditry is. Yeah, and and so uh, I said I looked and and obviously Occupy Wall Street it sells great. Um, the top one percent is taking all the uh, resources that uh, exist in the country. The rest of the country has nothing. We feel like victims, um, uh, and you know it's a wonderful political issue. Um, but to some degree, it is a manufactured political issue to get people mobilized. And who manufactured it? Well, the people who get people elected. And the get the elect me industry is different from the govern us industry. And the most of America, it seems to me, looks at govern us as the point of politics but not the people who are in it. They look at elect me as the point of the whole exercise, and that's the business. Um, if you look at statistics that tell you how much gets spent from all sources, and it's very difficult to find this because it's not meant to be easy, um, it's very difficult to find it, but it's billions of dollars per cycle, many billions of dollars, increasing numbers of billions of dollars. And which was which was the third point I made in the intro, which is the politics is a business, and you can't really understanding that know about knowing about and, the money. And you know, if you if you look at um, uh, here's an example. There's a hearing for a Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh is going on. The higher likelihood is that Brett Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed. Um, Brett Kavanaugh is clearly a capable lawyer found to be entirely qualified by the American Bar Association, which is not generally thought to be right-leaning. And he, in all likelihood, will be a fine Supreme Court justice. There are issues that people can be riled up about, but these are entirely unpredictable. Nobody knows how he's going to vote on anything, and there is ample precedent with uh, prior justices that they change their stripes entirely. Um, there are many examples of that. Yet we have completely orchestrated protests going on. The, the hearing is not a hearing at all. It's a stage. There's no point in focusing on Kavanaugh. The thing to do is to take the cameras and turn them around and focus on the several people who think that they're in the running to be president in 2020, they're posturing, they're uh, setting themselves up, getting themselves some airtime, and so forth. And then the protests are clearly organized and paid for. These are not spontaneous. All you have to imagine if you look at a protest, I've gone down to the mall and looked at either the befores or afters or durings of protests, and you say, where did all the bathrooms come from? Where did the barriers come from? 
did they fall from the sky? No, these have to be organized. And there are people who are very good at it. And it's part of the process of the K Street, you know, changing public opinion and mostly aiming to get people to fight with each other because that's how you make the most money. Well, yeah, you, 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 you polarize each side and then you get everybody excited and they write checks and, and, and there comes your revenue. You know, you know, we talked about, you mentioned the top 1% and how Occupy Wall Street got the wrong address and it is K Street. Uh, I believe it's true, but for the top five wealthiest counties in the United States surround uh, Washington, D.C. They do indeed. They and do indeed. And so it's, it's not only the power in Washington, but the money's in Washington. And sure. It's, um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's obviously, there are a lot of, you know, there are some uh, wealthy counties dotted around in the United, uh, throughout the United States. I'm sure Pitkin County, Colorado, where Aspen is, is probably pretty high <laughs> on the list. And uh, there are obviously ones uh, in Silicon Valley and around New York City and so forth. But the, you know, the counties that are here where you and I live and Washington, D.C. doesn't count as a county. But if you could take Northwest D.C. and call it sure. a county, yeah. Yeah. that would be another one that would would be very high on the list. And this is all people that are um, uh, making a very good living off of governing or getting people elected. One one thing you said I'd like to dig into a little bit more. You you said it's the gov get elected ver the crowd versus the the govern us. I'd I'd say most of America would say govern ourselves. You know I don't I think most of America would say good point. You know, leave that's us alone and and instead we've got all the uh, all the stuff that's coming out of Washington and. It, it, it's unrelenting. I, I, I'm, I'm president of our volunteer fire and rescue out in Rappahannock County. And the fire chief there, Ann, talks all the time about the unman, un, unfunded mandates that come through the, the fire and rescue system, where she says, she says, I used to run calls. I used to save people's lives. I used to fight fires. Now I'm filling out forms. I'm filling this regulation, that regulation. So it's, it, yeah. it, it, what, what comes out of D.C. has permeated every facet of American life. And that's... Uh, I don't know how we roll that back, but we've got to we got to find, figure out a way to do that. Was there any incentive to do that at the Harvard reunion? Did any of the panels talk no. about the need to? No, uh, no. It, and if you um, if you were trying to make the case for uh, centralized decision making, the case that you would probably make would be uh, homogeneity, mm -hmm. predictability and fairness, and that everybody gets treated the same. Um, the case that you might make against that is inflexibility, um, non-responsiveness, uh, and uh, you could be where you would like to be on that axis. Washington definitely wants to be at the former end of it, because mm. that means they're making all the decisions where if, if there has to be a regulation about your volunteer fire department, where does somebody go who wants to influence that regulation? Well, they can come here. And it's, it's kind of one-stop shopping. 
if they had to go and sell whatever service they might want to do to your volunteer fire department, do they go to Washington, Virginia? And do they chat with the person that you were describing and say, here's what we can do? Or do they sell their service by putting it into a regulation that you more or less have to buy that service? Well, that question answers itself. We haven't had anybody show up at our doorstep saying, what do you need or yeah. don't need? And it, you know, it, it just, it's interesting. You're talking about a phenomenon I've, I've written and talked about elsewhere that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a circle of power and influence that keeps sucking everything into Washington. In 1960, before a lot of these programs came into existence, there were only a handful of companies that had a lot, had an office here to lobby in Washington. And yet as the, you know, the EPA got created, the great society created a lot of labor laws and things like that. Pretty soon businesses felt like they had to be here. Now you can't find any major corporation in America that doesn't have a significant presence here in Washington spends a lot of time here. And to your point, if you want to make things happen, uh, this is the tip of the spear and sure. And, and, you know, I, I've often imagined, I mean, you're much closer to this than me because you've been a CEO and I sure as hell never have. Um, and it seemed to me that I, I have this vision of a board meeting and I'm picturing the CEO and I'm picturing the board members and I'm picturing some beleaguered CFO or budget officer or whatever, uh, endeavoring to justify the amount of money that the company is going to spend on lobbying. And then I imagine the entire board of directors bursting into laughter as they consider what the return on investment of whatever it is that they are spending on lobbying being higher than the return on investment of anything else the company does. And that it would be immediately approved, whatever amount of money you want to spend on lobbying, spend it. Uh, it is going to pay dividends. There is, I, gosh, I, I'm trying to rack my brain for some of these examples because I've, I've talked about elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's instances where industries spend, you know, $50 million on lobbying a particular regulation. And then when they get it in place, um, they reap billions and billions thereafter. Look at the money spent on ethanol lobbying. Sure. I happen to believe that ethanol is not a great additive to gasoline, yet the money that the corn industry spent on getting that into gas has paid itself. It, 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 it's probably produced a 500 to 1 return on the sure. money. And it explains the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> it does. Although, <laughs> did you see the California now is trying to get ahead of Iowa? Oh, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've, always, I, I've always thought, ah, yes, I can explain why. The, uh, an early stop in campaigning is to go to Iowa, uh, participate in the caucuses, take the pledge, and that's what they call it, that you can't have an alternate thought on ethanol. You have to take the pledge uh, or you will lose in Iowa. And well, that's one of the reasons I like Rand Paul in that particular election is he, act, maybe it was Rand Paul or was it Ted Cruz? They went into Iowa and said, uh, um, I don't think ethanol should be subsidized. And then I think they finished sixth. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you know, it's... Uh, you know, and, and that's the interesting thing. People think the, the, the cronyism the, the, that occurs here is, is, you know, it's the big companies doing it. It's the greedy capitalists. Well, I'm sure that that's partly the case, but you've got 
virtually every faction in America has got something, some skin in the game and the, sure. and the game is here, here in DC. Um, you know, which gets us back to one of the, the first point I make, and I think you touched on it. Most of, most of our problems uh, can't be solved by politics or governments. I mean, the real problems, I mean, the life and death problems, the, uh, the whether you leave a happy life problem, whether you, uh, um, you know, feel like you're taking care of your family, uh, whether, you know, the, the things that are close to your heart and close to yourself, government can't and politics can't. And yet we act in the presumption and our media covers it as if, uh, you know, we get this one bill passed and people are going to live happily ever after. It never happens. No. And it's, it, I hadn't thought about it in this way until you just mentioned it, but um, there's a whole world of uh, uh, counting stress points. And you've probably heard about this, that there are certain things that if, you, if your stress level gets up, too high, it can actually adversely affect your health. And sure. there are certain items yeah. that are big contributors. Getting a divorce might be a loss of a, a family per, a member, a loss of a job, any number of things. And if you look at the biggest stress points, the biggest contributors to stress, not one of them is political. It's mm. all sort of family, job, um, uh, financial reversals, those sorts of things are the biggest contributors to problems. And politics really doesn't do anything about any of those things. And there's a, another piece that I think is really interesting and uh, probably we'll write about it at some point um, uh, in the future. And that is um, borders don't work anymore. And if you think about how borders were intended to work, um, from the time of the Treaty of Westphalia. Sorry to be a bore about that one, but... Um, 1646? 15-something, uh, I think. <laughs> a long time ago. It's several hundred years ago. We've been living in this... Just acting like I knew something. <laughs> yeah, we've been living with this for a long time. Right, okay. And, you know, the Treaty of Westphalia was about what? country was supposed to be, yeah. is basically, if you and I had the only two countries... I say, Bill, you know, I'm not going to bother you or your country. Yeah. And you agree that you're not going to bother me or mine. And by the same token, I will also make sure that the people who live in my country are not going to bother you. And you'll do the same for me. And that worked fine in the 1500s. Now, it doesn't work fine. Um, now, you can't stop people from traveling, you can't stop ideas from traveling, you can't stop shipping, you can't stop exports, you can't stop. Logistics have been a much more bigger contributor to the change in our lives than politics have. The fact that we can ship containers all over the world at low prices is one of the biggest factors that there is. Well, that's kind of in the idea. That's what I believe is that somebody like Steve Jobs has done more to help human happiness than the last 500 politicians you can name. And Absolutely. You get, you get, you get some, some, uh, some extremely exciting um, innovations driven by somebody who may or may not be a nice guy, but it changes, it, changes, it changes the shape of human reality, and that's what happens. Politics doesn't do that. Politics is zero sum. It doesn't create. It's, it just divides. Well, 
you know, I always think about, have I ever met an African fisherman? No, never have. Um, do I picture the African fisherman? Yeah, I do. Uh, he's on his boat and he catches his fish. And he then, today, he picks up his cell phone. He looks to see whether if he pulls into this port, what price is he going to get for his fish? If he pulls into that port, what yeah. price is he going to get for his fish? And he didn't used to be able to do that. And it has aided prosperity in an enormous way. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. Not many months ago, I was at a talk given by the head of the World Bank. And he had a very optimistic view of what we have been successful in doing over the course of the last 50 years. We have lifted more people out of poverty in the world in the last 50 years than has ever been done in all of human history by a huge margin. And what was the number? About a billion, and, two billion? Oh, I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it was, a, it was an astonishing, uh, I, yeah, it, I know that. It's a breathtaking number. And, and, you know, it used to be that the definition of poverty was a dollar a day. And this guy, I mean, he's speaking yeah. and he's being very candid. And he said, you know, with a dollar a day, we ran out of poor people. The World <laughs> Bank needs poor people. That's and true. we raised it to <laughs> a buck and a quarter. And still, we ran out of poor people. Well, that, you know, that's and a topic. Now we're at a dollar ninety-five. That's another. We still have a declining number of poor people. So we're doing a great job, and yet <laughs> you aren't allowed to hear the aspects of life in which we are doing a great job. Well, that's the problem with most of these social programs: is that if the problem gets solved, they got to figure out a way to redefine the problem to stay in business, and that's exactly. essentially what's happened. Yeah. And that creation of wealth happened because of what happened in the private sector. It didn't happen because, I mean, the government may, may have helped at the edges, but not, not fundamentally. Um, the, but that, what you just mentioned is something we ought to talk about at, at length in another show. Um, okay. We need to wind up here. Okay. Uh, I, my, t my take, uh, well, I, why don't you, why don't you wrap up? I and mean, what do you, how do you see, um, Final words. Um, I wish I knew how to fix it. Um, yeah. I, I, another topic that I've been interested in is devolution and pushing decision making to the lowest. Devolution. Level. Yeah. And moving you, power out to the to the. Yeah. To and and I, I think that uh, right. I think you described it beautifully uh, with regulations for your volunteer fire department, and that would be sort of devolution writ large. When yes. you go from Washington to the volunteer fire department, that's a pretty long way. Mm. But, it, you know, I've often wondered whether there are moments where those in central government have a moment of self-reflection and ask themselves, what did we do wrong to create this problem? Why do people in America hate the elites so much? Now, not all people, but some people. The other one that is, interests me is to imagine a conversation in Brussels in which a group of high-level European Union officials ask themselves, would there have been anything we could have done to keep Brexit off the ballot? Mm -hmm. What did we do to make them mad enough to mm -hmm. pick up that ball, turn it into a political issue, you know, it, it isn't necessarily that the EU caused Brexit, but 
there were people who could exploit a fertile field that was created. And the fertile field that's created in the United States is people hate Washington. Polls, terrible. Nobody likes Congress, nobody likes the executive, nobody likes the government. They're doing an absolutely awful job. Nobody would invest in a company that had that kind of popularity uh, or support from their, the people that, that they depend on. And what could you do to counteract the desire to centralize the power here? And I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. Very, very thoughtful framing of the problem. I, I, let's, uh, let's go off and ponder that and come back in a future show and <laughs> see if we can't take a stab at a few answers. That's great. Haven, it's, it's great talking with you, as always. We've enjoyed our conversations over the years. We finally get to do it via, via Zoom. And uh, this, this, is, uh, this has worked out well. Thank you. And, uh, thanks for, and thanks for listening in. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.